This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabbar. The Royal Navy prepares to make redundancies. What does the future hold for those forced to leave and for the service itself? Job cuts too at BA Systems and the Labour Party tries to cosy up to the military. I, along with the brilliant Shadow Defence team, want to challenge the age-old ill-informed orthodoxy that the Labour Party is the party of the NHS and the Tories are the party of the forces. First it was the Army and the RAF. Now it's the turn of the Royal Navy to announce job losses. Tomorrow, around 1,100 Royal Navy personnel will be told they're being made redundant casualties of the Defence Review. Around a third of them are reported to be compulsory. Former First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Jonathan Band joins us, as does our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Admiral, uh, did the government make the right decision to cut this number of Navy posts? Uh, Good afternoon to you. Um... Not a question one can answer. I mean, the the number falls directly out of deciding you want a smaller navy. If your decision is to make a smaller navy, then you must man it with the numbers you need. I personally think uh, that uh, the size of the navy at the moment is too small, uh, and I certainly wouldn't have cut it that way. So in that respect, I don't agree with the sailors going. Uh, but But the sailors... Numbers of sailors and officers directly relate to the the size of the front line and what supports it. And so I'm not a believer in having the Navy overmanned for what it's supposed to be, but I do worry at this level that it's going down to. So you say it's too small. What effect do you think this first tranche will have? Well, the the reason I say it's too small is we have a Navy that's still charged with a pretty impressive set of tasks and a worldwide role and a role which would ask us to what I call fight on the first day of the war. And we're going to be doing it with a very small or a smaller number than we tried to before. So it is risky in respect of whether we have enough mass. I'm sure the actual figure work will all be done absolutely correctly, but it's more a a point about how much residual capability you have for the unexpected. And also, may I say, the expected, which is to be overtasked. We always have been, as long as I've ever been in the Navy. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because during the the beginning of the Libya campaign, we heard the RAF complaining about uh, running hot. Um, Is that going to be the case, do you think, with the Navy, or is it already like that? Well, there's a set of tasks, and there's a set of ships, uh, and a set of units, and a set of squadrons. Uh, All I'm just saying is my experience... uh, governments traditionally find the Navy incredibly employable because they're very employable in peacetime as well as when you've got operations on. So really it's a matter for the government of the day to decide how many operations it's prepared to do and to what depth. The smaller the Navy, the less operations, less depth. It's just simple as that. And there is always a danger that you will be slightly over-busy rather than under-busy. The MOD has stressed that no-one in receipt of the operational allowance will be forced out, so those currently on operations in Libya are OK, but those who went out first aren't. Is that fair and sensible thinking to your mind? The whole business about who is eligible and who is not, I mean, I think is being complicated with The fact of life is you join the Royal Navy to go operational, and I think it's quite invidious to actually on occasions talk about those in Libya as opposed to those who are on the deterrent patrol or those in Afghanistan or those who are in Iraq or those who are in the South Atlantic now. 
the government made a, a policy point and I assume the Navy is sticking by it because that's what the government said. But actually the whole Navy is operational, so it can be quite invidious to talk about someone who happened to come off that op as opposed to another one. Mm. Christopher Lee, do you agree with that view? Yeah, it, it, it's curious, isn't it? I mean, I, the government, it's very difficult for it apparently to actually say what it wants the Navy to be doing, let us say, 2020 uh, or it's an, it's almost even an 2015. Task, isn't it? Um, but you can't simply say, oh, well, then we'll do it then. We'll go and get the ships that we need to do it. We'll go and get the manpower. I mean, an, an obvious thing that if you, if in the redundancies, you remove some of the technical rates, it may be that you can't replace them that quickly. But as long as you know what you want your Navy to do, that's okay. Now, if you take three ships, for example, the Cumberland, Liverpool, and uh, the York, um, they, in various ways, have all been involved in the uh, Libyan operation. And fine, Liverpool, I was talking to one of the officers in Liverpool, and he said, we're held together with the blue tack. Well, you know, that's all right, because Liverpool's coming back, and I think she, she goes into decommission then, but she's done the job. Mm. Then you talk to somebody in, in Ocean who said, well, we couldn't do the search and uh, rescue the, uh, operations ourselves. We brought had to bring in uh, American uh, crews and helicopters. There's part of me which says that's okay because it's, it's the coalition of the willing in, in operations like this. But it does mean that the government has got to accept these limitations. Presumably that's what they've done. But it's the uncertainty of limitations. That's when you get to the more difficult thing to handle. And there's well, two things. One is morale. And the second thing is sometimes you've got people at sea so much that you can't actually get them ashore for training. But that's another subject. But that's, I think that sums it up. Admiral, do you get the sense that we're at the point of the decisions that are being made now, that we are at the point of no return in terms of capabilities for the Royal Navy? No, I don't believe that. But I do believe we're on the cusp of being a different Navy and a different scaled Navy. I mean, you can have a Navy with one ship if you really want. You can have a Navy with, you know, a thousand ships if you really can afford it. Uh, and at different levels of numbers of ships and types of ships, you have a capability. The point about the Royal Navy is we you know, are asked and wish to remain in the top division. You know, We are a Navy that can go anywhere in the world. Uh, we have the vast majority of, ca uh, of capabilities. Clearly, at the moment, we do not have the carrier strike capability because that's been uh, removed, us, removed from us for a period, but we are promised that back with the carriers and the new aeroplanes. Um, so, and at that, at that size, we can do the vast majority of things. If you start cutting back beyond where we are now, and some would say probably at the point we are now, you are just getting to that size of mass. You just wonder in football analogy whether the football squad is really good or big enough to take a couple of injuries. And that's the issue. It's that sort of mass and stability that worries me at this sort of size that we have at the moment. How much do but you in the end, the government can have the Navy at once. All I ask is give it its tasks, give it the capability it should be, and for goodness sake, give it the resources, and that's humans and money to run it. Uh, Christopher, what about the skills being lost? Are you wor worried about that? Um, always worried about skills being lost. I mean, you can train, I mean, I'm, I'm told cynically that you can train somebody to fly an aircraft onto a, onto a flat top in, you know, in 18 months, but all the other schools get there. What I'm f far more interested now is that we mustn't think that this week is it. 
next March there are going to be Indeed. further uh, further announcements. I'm far more interested in whether you look around what's happening global economy, the British economy, the Italian economy, I mean, the European economy. I just wonder whether the extra money which everybody expects and has been promised, even a minimum of 1%, as uh, Mr. Fox, the Defence Secretary, said, if it's going to be there uh, in, let's say, 2015. And that bothers me greatly, because if it isn't there, that extra money, then what happened last October won't work in terms of the defence review. But secondly, people have to start thinking again. Say, well, if we haven't got that extra money... Look at the reduced size of the Navy at the moment, and you get an enormous amount of value for it at the moment, stretched as it is. Start looking at it again, and then you have to make some really, really uh, major decisions about the Navy. You know, as the Admiral said, you can have a Navy with one ship if that's what you really want. But somebody has to decide what they want, and that's somebody you have to trust their judgment. Uh, Admiral... Um, Chris, you, you may well be right, uh, this issue of whether there is enough funding to afford what is known as Force Level 2020. But even, in us, even assuming there is, and it must be doubtful at this stage from, from what we know, uh, and of course there's always an element of what we know and what we don't know, but the issue that people have got to remember is even on the assumption that there is sufficient money for 2020, the Navy for the next four years is going to be going through a series of redundancy programs. And that is a significant leadership and management channel, a challenge for those serving from leading hand upwards to have these you know, waves of redundancy being assessed, announced, and then delivered. So, you know, it'll only be worse if we don't, or can't afford 2020, which is why this extra money that is being talked about is so important. Otherwise, I fear we're going to have to have smaller forces, and I'm not being parochial Navy here. I think it will be right across the board. But it's, you know, it's, quite, a, it's quite a challenge. I was at sea in Command of Illustrious when the last of the last redundancy tranches went through in '96. And I remember then when it was about 90 to 95% from memory were volunteers. It was still an agonizing experience to see go through. In, uh, and it will be. And, you know, and I, I feel for those families who will get the news tomorrow, the news if it's, if it's news they don't want. Some will be pleased. Some will apply, see the chance to make a break, and good luck to them. Some it, will not be, will not. Uh, and uh, I, f I feel for them because it's it's tacky period. Indeed. Admiral Sir Jonathan Band, do stay with us. I want to carry on with that subject, that the effect on the Royal Navy personnel, because we have Kim Richardson, who's the chair of the Naval Families Federation, who's with us. Uh, Kim, some people have applied for voluntary redundancy, as uh, the Admiral said. Have you any idea how many... No, not at this point. And, and the same as uh, Admiral Band said, I wouldn't like to even start sort of uh, casting views before the people who are affected know. I think, I think we've just got to just wait for tomorrow. Um, and if we start making suppositions, it's not particularly helpful. The, the speculation, though, is that um, compared to the Army and the RAF, there are fewer people who actually want to be made redundant. Is that, do you get that kind of feeling from the people you've been talking to? Uh, I'm not necessarily getting that sense. Where I think uh, I have some concerns at the moment is that this round of redundancies is very much about um, youngsters um, and the more junior. Uh, I represent families, uh, which includes mums and dads. 
And I would say that the mums and dads that I've spoken to of these youngsters do have some concern about uh, what there is at home for them if they have to return home. Uh, for many of these families, the youngster joining the Navy has been the success story that they talk about. Um, they're, they're coming away for, from uh, something that doesn't have anything for them at home. So I would sense that those are the people that um, are concerned or have registered their concern at the moment. Do you think the move for those kind of people from service life into Civvy Street, albeit that they've only been perhaps in the Royal Navy for a short while, is going to be particularly difficult or, or even more difficult than people leaving the other services? I think for some people what the Navy's done um, and equipped them with to go into Civvy Street um, is something they wouldn't have if they hadn't uh, joined the Navy. And, I, you know, I feel very strongly that uh, it is very special um, they are special people um, you don't understand it unless you've tried it um, I'm associated with it but some of it I still don't get uh, so I think they're probably better placed than perhaps some other people are but we all know what Civvy Street is like at the moment it, it's not necessarily a good place to be uh, there aren't lots of jobs sitting there waiting for people to go into them so I would imagine for those families it's it's a very worrying time how do you feel Navy Command have handled this whole thing? Um, I have to say, um, extremely well. Uh, and as you know, we are an independent organisation. If we um, think that there's something they could be doing better, we're very quick to tell them. Uh, we've been involved right from the beginning on the communications side. Um, and they have listened to all the input that we've given, the suggestions that we've made. Um, and, I, and I think, uh, having met the team, the redundancy, the fleet redundancy cell, everybody who's involved on the outside, I honestly can't say that there's anything more that they could have done. There's a lot of very caring people out there um, who want to do their best for um, the people who are going to get those envelopes tomorrow and don't necessarily want them. I guess, Kim, plenty more that you're going to have to do. What kind of support are you offering? Well, we are actually going to uh, man our office remotely over the weekend in case families have got questions that they'd like answered, um, but also just in case anybody needs directing in, in any uh, particular direction for um, specific support. Uh, we also, on our website, have a dedicated redundancy area with the help of um, Navy Command, who have been very good about what they've let us have for that uh, external website. I think the time for me over the next couple of days is going to be very much to make sure that people are equipped with whatever information they need um, and in order to make informed decisions. Um, and I see us very much as playing a part there. If something isn't working, I almost also see us uh, having a part to play because if something isn't working or it could have been done better, I'm very keen to hear about that as well because this is tranche one. Uh, we have more to come. Uh, and I think we need to look at lessons learned as, uh, at the same time. All right, Kim, thanks for your time. That's Kim Richardson, the chair of the Naval Families Federation. Admiral Sir Jonathan Band, um, let's talk about morale. How are those serving on ships around the world going to feel about their work after tomorrow, do you think? Well, I think what I'd say before today, before the, the issue of tomorrow's announcement, is actually if you go to the front line, whether it's the Marine commandos in, in, and, the, and, and sailors in Afghanistan, whether they're anywhere in the world, in the front line, morale is high. They are committed to their jobs. That's why they joined the Navy, and they are busy and committed and 
and feel, feel valued. So in the front line, there isn't essentially a morale problem. Where you do notice people's concerns more are further away, where there's more time to think, when they're back at home, when they're in jobs which are n- n- not uh, quiet jobs, but they're just less testing on a, what I call a 24-hour-a-day, 24-7 basis. And so you get much more reflection at home, and that's where you get you know, this, the wobbles, the worries. Now, tomorrow will be a hard date wherever you are. You know, there'll be a bit of, well, you know, which of us got the, you know, the damn envelope and which hasn't, and, you know, I wanted and didn't get it and I didn't want to get it. And, you know, there's going to be a bit of that everywhere. It's going, to be, it's going to be tough. But I'm also very, very confident. I mean, I know the club that is the Navy. Uh, they will look after them, good and bad. Uh, they'll look after them, whatever the news is. Uh, I know the divisional system will be cranked out properly to do this. Uh, I am heartened what I heard Kim say. I would expect the Navy to do this in a caring way. If you're in the Navy for one day, you're a Navy man or woman, and you'll be looked after as best we can. I'm sure they'll do it. But, you know, tomorrow's not going to be much fun, and neither. And there's going to be two or three more of these days when, we, when the Navy crunches out the numbers that they want. And... Uh, you know they're having to they're having right. to make sure that the thirty thousand that are left at the end of this process are the right skills and age and profile to man the navy that has been asked for by the government, All and right. that is why some people are volunteers and will get it. Some people won't in other ways round. All right, Admiral Sir Jonathan Band, stay with us. Sit rep with Still to come, the Labour Party says it wants your vote and is making moves to get it. And it's Lord Nelson's birthday. What would he make of the shrinking fleet? The defence company BAE Systems announced this week it's cutting almost 3,000 jobs. The firm will make redundancies at its factory in Brough in East Yorkshire, which currently employs 1,300 workers. There'll also be job losses in Wharton and Salmsbury in Lancashire and the firm's head office in Hampshire. Most of the job cuts will be in its military aircraft division, which is being affected by a slowdown in orders for the Eurofighter Typhoon combat jet. Earlier, I spoke to the BBC's Tim Iredale, who's been covering the story in the northeast and asked him what kind of impact the job losses will have. We're talking about 900 jobs at the site at Brough in East Yorkshire and these are skilled manual jobs that are in very much short supply not just in East Yorkshire but across the north of England right now. I mean the unions say it's, it's a hammer blow to the local economy and MPs from all sides agree it will take a long time for the area to get over this. And as you said um, highly skilled workers what kind of employment opportunities are there if any locally and will they be forced to look further afield? Yes well in fact the, the minister one of the government ministers who responded to the news said that uh, Uh, the government will be working with BAE Systems to try to uh, encourage redeployment elsewhere in the UK. Uh, But I think for a lot of the workers at the site in Brough and probably the sites in Lancashire as well, that simply isn't an option. They have families, they have uh, obviously children in local schools, so so moving to other parts uh, of the country or other parts of of Europe. So just tell us a little bit about uh, the history of British aerospace in the area. What kind of legacy does it have? Well, it goes back to, to 1915, to the First World War. They've been manufacturing uh, aircraft on that site, or, or certainly parts for the aircraft ind- industry, for, uh, for the best part of a century. And it, it has been part of life there. I mean, it, Bruff is BAE. It, it's, it's synonymous with the uh, defence giant. And, and I think the site probably has been most famous over the years for manufacturing the, the Hawk trainer jet, made famous... Uh, 
by the red arrows all over the world and uh, certainly whenever I see the red arrows at a display, I see them flying around at the Hawk aircraft, uh, I, I always think about the site in Bruff where those uh, aircraft are are manufactured. But, but really the... Um, the kind of downturn, if you like, has been caused by a slowdown in orders uh, for the Eurofighter Typhoon jet. Now, uh, the government says this is this is not particular to the UK. We're talking about uh, well, there are four partner nations uh, in the Typhoon program, uh, and, and and the government have cr- come out and criticised Labour today. Labour are saying it's purely a government def- defence cut story because of the, the 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 cuts that were made in the strategic defence program last year. That that's uh, in the words of the Labour leader Ed Miliband has sold BAE workers down the river. But the government say no, it's it's the same all over the world. Uh, most developed nations are cutting back on their defence budget. So so this is part of a global uh, economic defence slowdown. And in terms of the region, do you see this as the end of an era, the end of the aerospace industry in the area? It's difficult to see how the Bruff site can survive, um, losing 900 jobs out of a total of 1,300. I mean, uh, the the, the site will remain, we are told, and if there is an upturn in the defence industry, if perhaps other nations come forward with orders for uh, for the Eurofighter Typhoon, then there is a chance that production may pick up uh, and Bruff may indeed rise like a phoenix from the flames, but but most people are pretty pessimistic at this stage, uh, and certainly I think most people do see it as as an end of an era for aircraft manufacturing in Yorkshire. That was Tim Iredale, BBC political editor for Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. Uh, Christopher Lee, um, the news that we've heard this week from BAE Systems, do you think it was all inevitable? It was inevitable, and let's not separate it from what we're talking about earlier, about... You know, cuts in the defence uh, in, in estate and the defence realm. Um, BAE Systems is not just Yorkshire and Lancashire. Uh, it's, it employs about 100,000 people throughout the world. In the United Kingdom, it's about 40,000. It's just the tip of the iceberg, really, isn't it? It is. It is also true that uh, no aircraft industry outside the United States, China and Russia uh, works by itself in that country. You have to work with others. We've had to do that since the early 1980s. So that's, that's the simple thing, that we, it, it, it happens that way. You have partners. So, for example, Eurofighter, you would have partners with the Italians, with the French, just as the Tornado was, MRCA, it was Panavia. So you've got the Italians involved, you've got the French involved, you've got the Germans involved, etc. Look at the Italian economy now. Mm. Look at the French economy. Look at the stresses on the, on, on, on the, on the Germans. This is the sum of what happens. You say, are we getting the orders from, uh, from, from India, for example? There's another aircraft in for that contract. We may not win. What about Iran? What about Japan? What about more from Saudi Arabia? What's going to happen there? What's going to happen when we start getting our piece of the joint strike fighter? If you can't guarantee that international, that interlocking way of doing business then you look at some of your assets and say, on the bigger subject, we've really got to start thinking to ourselves, let's get rid of some of the stuff that we no longer can need or we no longer maintain. And that's another important. Look around some of the Air Force bases. They are privately, it goes out to private companies to maintain some aircraft. So 
Air Force bases will feel what's happening at BAE as well. Indeed. Uh, Christopher, do stay with us. Um, This week, the Labour Party have tried to get themselves a bit of an image change as the political friend of the forces. At their conference in Liverpool, they've announced cheap party membership for serving personnel and veterans and a new Labour Friends of the Forces group. The Shadow Defence Secretary also told his party that despite Labour's shame about Iraq, it couldn't stop them from intervening to save civilians, as Britain has done in Libya. So, is this a new era for Labour on defence? James Hurst was at the conference. Defence got a good airing in Liverpool this week. A keynote speech from the Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy, who had a couple of eye-catching announcements up his sleeve. Serving forces personnel and veterans can now join the party for just £1 rather than the usual 40 and also the creation of a new Labour Friends of the Forces group. I, along with a brilliant Shadow Defence team, want to challenge the age-old ill-informed orthodoxy that the Labour Party is the party of the NHS and the Tories are the party of the forces. And to illustrate just how accommodating Labour is to those from a military background, Mr Murphy was introduced by one of the party's newest MPs, former Parachute Regiment Major Dan Jarvis, on the conference stage for the first time. I've been to party conference a number of times, but because I was always in the army, I was, I was petrified of actually being seen by my bosses on TV, so I sort of avoided the, the media spotlight at all costs. I think this year I've done about 25... TV interview, so it's quite nice not to have to worry about being outed. The message from the top of Labour on defence this year, Afghanistan is the main priority. The government did the right thing, saving thousands from slaughter in Libya, and we should look after the forces. One delegate welcoming those sentiments said the party had been uncomfortable talking about defence in the past. So, does this conference mark a shift? I think there possibly has, yes. Previously, it was very much focused on what was going on in Iraq, and I think that was not entirely popular with with Labour Party and Labour Party members. I think the party have always supported the armed forces. I think a lot of the members of the party were not supported the use to which they were put. I just think a pride in what our men and women are doing, uh, and that struck me this week. And I think it's right. Perhaps we haven't spoken up loud enough in the past, and it's only right that we do it now. No party has ever been uncomfortable going on the attack against its rivals, however, and it was perhaps inevitable the Shadow Defence Secretary would once again condemn the cuts of the Defence Review. Aircraft carriers with no aircraft upon them. Now, you don't have to be a military strategist to know what aircraft carriers are meant to do. The clue is in the name. But what are his solutions? I put it to Mr Murphy that his speech was low on policy, while announcements like cheap membership were just a gimmick. Look, we're not here to please the critics and the political parties. We're here to do the right thing for our country and the right thing for our forces. And this is a way of strengthening our relationship and having many more people who are veterans also. And make the Labour Party speak with an even more authoritative voice when it comes to defence issues. You went on the attack on defence cuts. Some people who listen to that will go, well, I didn't actually hear what would be done differently if Labour was in power right now. I also said very clearly to the Labour Party conference that the deficit is there and we have to support some savings. We would go about this in an entirely different process. The defence review the government had, that defence review is a spending review. It's how much can we cut, how much can we save as quickly as possible. A better conversation is what's Britain's role in the world. And then you discuss it. Can you afford it? And how would you make it happen? So that's the process we're now going through in the Labour Party. And having criticised the government for a rushed defence review, we're going to be more careful, more cautious, and come up with much better responses. Like any party that's lost power, Labour is looking to update itself. As one MP put it to me, defence isn't likely to be a vote winner, but getting it wrong can be a vote loser. That is, however, nothing compared to the consequences of getting it wrong if you were to find yourself back in power.
James Hurst reporting from the Labour Party conference in Liverpool. Christopher Lee, what do you make of the Labour Party trying to cosy up to the forces? Well, I'll tell you something. If, if you go back to the 1960s, it is generally recognised, quite often among the forces themselves, that Labour have always been a greater practical uh, friend of defence than the Tories. And one of the reasons for that is the industrial base, which the defence industry mm-hmm. all supported. There's another aspect of which becomes particularly important, and that is that when we consider, and, and things will change uh, radically in 2015 when there's the next election, I have never seen, never seen, defence as an election issue. Mm. So they're all quite safe, all quite safe with, uh, with defence. Now, uh, with so much talk this week about the Navy, we couldn't let today go by without mentioning it's the birthday of one of Britain's national and, indeed, naval heroes, Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson. He would have been the ripe old age of 253. Admiral Sir Jonathan Band is still with us. Um, what do you make, Admiral, of uh, Lord ne- Nelson and what he would have thought of the state of today's Navy? Oh, I think he'd have recognised good times and bad times. I mean, uh, if you look back at the during his period of service and around that time the Regency Navy we were fighting the French, we got money when we weren't fighting the French we didn't get any money and it was extraordinary how quickly the size of the front line was reduced I mean literally three years before, three and a half years before Trafalgar when there was the peace of of Amiens in the start of the 19th century, we basically paid off half the ships and they were required again within a year so he would recognise this and he'd probably say, bloody admiralty. There's <laughs> another side of this, because when we weren't fighting the French, they also paid off, or put him on half pay, uh, Nelson himself. Absolutely. He, he, he was ashore, no ship, no, no job. The other, there's one other side of it. We tend to concentrate too much on numbers. Uh, he would have recognised capability. And quality, is, well, cap- well, yeah, he yeah. provided the quality, but capability. When you think about the type... 45 that's at sea now and is going to be there are going to be more of them i think i think it was uh, admiral boyce who once said this is sail to steam revolution and so i think nelson would have turned around and said by heck they're remarkable ships and on that note we must leave it admiral sir jonathan ban thank you for joining us today um, that's all we have time for this week my thanks to christopher lee and all our guests tell us what you think whether it's about royal navy redundancies or the labor party's new interest in all things forces by following us on twitter at bfbs sitrep or you can email us the address is sitrep at bfbs.com thanks for listening we'll be back next week bye-bye for now This is Sit Rep on BFBS.